Ante Up is your poker magazine dedicated to the everyday player and their poker rooms. Pick up a free copy at your favorite poker room nationwide each month. But Ante Up is much more than a magazine. Visit AnteUpMagazine.com daily for breaking news and each week download our award-winning poker cast. Join us on our action-packed poker cruises to exotic destinations. Ante Up, it's your poker magazine. From the Anti-Up headquarters in Tampa Bay, Florida, it's the Anti-Up PokerCast. And now, here are two guys who think they know how to play poker, Chris Casenza and Scott Long. It's July 8th, 2016. You're listening to the best poker cast on the planet. I'm Chris Casenza. And I'm Scott Long. Uh, I tell you, I'm so full from the July 4th holiday... You know, I just ate so much food. I wonder if there's someone else out there who, over the July 4th weekend, ate a lot of food. Probably was, but it wasn't me. It wasn't you? <laughs> oh, no! What happened? All right, so, of course, you're, you're fishing for me to uh, talk about this hot dog eating contest that I entered on July 3rd, right? Yes. And um, highly anticipated because we had so many people donating. I think by the time uh, I, I took to the stage, we were up to $170 per hot dog. Wow. Uh, to benefit our local neighborhood family center. Right? Pretty amazing, right? Yeah. And um, so I was a little cocky going into this thing, you know, because I, I could put some hot dogs away. And, uh, uh, but there started to be some cracks that I noticed leading up. So I went like uh, two days before the competition there to have a couple hot dogs in the actual location, right? And talk to the owner, and um, you know they serve uh, Nathan's hot dogs, which are my favorite, and, um, and they're really tasty. And he's like, "Yeah, we're not we're not going to use Nathan's. I think that's too spicy for this. I don't want you guys to upset your stomach, so I'm going to go with the Blander hot dog." And I'm like, uh, "Okay," and then changed the bun on us, and so you know I'm not making a lot of excuses here, but it just <laughs> uh, it was a different experience than I expected. But anyhow, it was a lot of fun, right? So. Uh, but what threw me for the biggest loop was uh, we're in our little competitors meeting right before the contest started, right? Mm-hmm. And signing our uh, liability forms and all that stuff. And uh, so it's called Daddy Dogs and Ice Cream. So it's a really great story. I'm not going to waste too much time with this, but it's a family-owned business. They started it. They, they knew they couldn't make enough business selling affordably priced hot dogs, so they uh, they sell ice cream as well. Um so he's like, hey, guys, unless you guys all um, oppose, um, you know, I am in the ice cream business as well. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you guys all eat a scoop of ice cream before you start eating your hot dogs. Does anybody mind? And of course, you know, hey, we're just there for this fun contest and, you know, whatever. Sure. Um, but in my head, I'm like, Ugh, ice cream before cold hot dogs? <laughs> this doesn't seem like a good combination right yeah um so we get out there and um uh, so they bring us our scoop of ice cream now i thought and i should have asked but i thought that we were gonna just eat the scoop of ice cream and then start the competition but no they start the clock right away so now you know i'm thinking not only do i gotta choke down the scoop of ice cream and then get my hot dogs down but 
uh, that rule change just cost my charity about 170 bucks because that's at least a hot dog I could have eaten. Right? Yeah. yeah. Eaten, uh, ice cream? Yeah. But anyhow, so it was a lot of fun. And uh, Laura did this Facebook Live thing, which is amazing, actually. Um, I'm, I'm definitely going to look for ways of doing that with the company because it's such a great uh, application where you can just uh, broadcast, literally broadcast anything live. And. Uh, there's a little chat box there, so people are chatting during it, and it's really cool. And then it, it, it saves it on your Facebook page, so people that aren't watching it live can go back later, like um, after the comp. Obviously, I couldn't watch it, I was eating, right? Yeah. But when I got home, I went back and watched it, and you can watch it, and, you, and it'll put the comments on the screen in the order they came in during it. So it's like watching it like TiVo, right? Holy cow. So it's really going to be cool for the business, I think, uh, once I figure out exactly how to do it. But anyhow, so uh, it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of cheering um, section out there. A lot of people came out. Even people I didn't know, people I knew brought people they that, that they knew to come out and watch. So it was a good day, but unfortunately, um, I got a little cocky. The, uh, it took me two minutes to get my scoop of ice cream down, which was um, uh, very embarrassing. Oh. Um, and so I only managed to get uh, five hot dogs down. In my ten minutes, five hot dogs and a scoop of ice cream in my ten minutes. <laughs> it took me two minutes to get the last hot dog down. And I'm not laughing at you. It's just, it's just. I I guessed in my mind you were going to eat five hot dogs. That was before the <laughs> ice cream thing. But I was like, next time I see Scott in the home game, I'll throw him a fiver because that's what's going to cost me, and he can have it and put, give it to the charity, you know. And that's exactly what you ate. That's just funny to me. I mean, I know the ice cream hurt you. You probably could have had six, but. Yeah, that's the thing. I, I don't think I could have got more than six deaths. So there were two times where I had to fight back the heaves, and, and wow. the, the heave or leave uh, rule was in effect at, at this competition. So that was tough too. I mean, I didn't want to be the guy yakking on Facebook <laughs> in front of all these <laughs> yakking kids. on Facebook. That would have been right. So that would have gone viral, man. Yeah. So the winner, I think, only I thought, the winner told me he got a ten. But then somebody told me he had nine, and then the Bay News Nine uh, TV station was actually there, and they reported he only had eight. So, huh. um, I, I don't think it was eight. I think he had more because they, they gave us uh, three plates of five hot dogs each, and he had two clean plates at the end. So he had to have ten. Okay. Unless he picked the hot dog up and moved it. But and of course, Joey Chestnut ate seventy. Right. Yeah. So the jokes were nonstop the next day <laughs> for my friends. You know. Hey. <laughs> That guy ate the same number of hot dogs you ate in 45 seconds. <laughs> now, I did make some tactical errors. I did. It, we, we did talk about the dunking thing there. Uh, like two days earlier when I went, I'm like, hey, because uh, I, I had been reading up on the rules of competitive eating, right? Mm-hmm. And not all hot dog contests allow you to dunk the bun. Right. Uh, Nathan's obviously does. So. I asked the guy, I'm like, hey, are we going to be able to dunk? He's like, oh, that's really gross, but if you guys want to, that's fine. So we, we did have like a, it wasn't a vote, but it was like, hey, do you guys want to dunk or not? And everybody, no one seemed excited about dunking. But then he put two cups of water in front of us, and I saw somebody not like taking the hot dog out and dunking it like Joey Chestnut would, right? Right. But just dunking it in and then taking a bite. So I really do think now the hardest part was the buns. So I think if I had to do it over again, I would bite the bullet and dunk that bun yeah absolutely because it's so much easier to go down and plus it breaks it down and squishes it you know what i mean yeah. i mean there's more more content in your stomach but it's the liquid it's not well that was what i was worried about was more my stomach filling up versus when i realized in the middle of the heat of the competition was i should have worried about just getting the crap down my throat right <laughs> that was the harder part so I, there, there was no way I- 
I was going to fill myself up in 10 minutes, I don't think, even with that ice cream swimming around there. <laughs> but anyhow, so we, we still have a couple people um, uh, left to uh, send us their money, but um, after the contest, I figured up that we made uh, 840 bucks, which isn't bad. That's great. Um, but then uh, donations kept coming in, and then as um, uh, Zorag, one of our longtime listeners, said, uh, pity bumps. For people that were expecting to donate more, because <laughs> they thought it was going to be more, a lot of people gave us more than what they uh, they pledged. So as of right now, we're looking at more than fifteen hundred dollars going to charity. Nice, dude. Okay. And if we we get the rest of the pledges that we're hoping, it's going to be another uh, four or five hundred bucks. Awesome. So it'd be pretty close to two thousand dollars, which would be four hundred dollars per hot dog. Wow, let's hear it for the longs, man. Great idea. <laughs> That's excellent. That was my wife's idea to come up with the yeah. stuff. That's why I said the longs, man. She she's right on top of that stuff. That's great. Good for her. But I tell you, folks, if you want to see something funny, go watch this video. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, the comments were just priceless, absolutely priceless. A lot of funny people out there watching. Awesome. All right, well, let's talk about some poker now. No, let's not. Yeah, yeah, we got to talk about some poker. All right. Um, all right so uh, Jennifer Newell, uh, writing on PokerUpdate.com, says poker needs an ethics committee. There's one group for all poker that will establish and enforce a code of ethics in an open and transparent manner. And in kind of a point-counterpoint, James Gule, writing on the same website, disagrees, saying it would be a hard group to form and operate. So uh, what, what, what do we say? Are we going to argue about this? Uh, I, don't, I don't think we're going to argue about it. I, I don't see how it's possible to do something like this. I mean, you could put together any kind of committee you want and then make you know suggestions and and whatever but i don't think any ethics committee it'd be like herding cats you know what i mean i just don't see how the you can establish a code all you want but i just don't know if now you've got to get so many entities on board with it look think about how many tours there are how many properties there are how many individual tournaments there are you know, it, it it's one thing to write a rules book and hope everyone follows Roberts' rules. No one says you have to. It's one thing to have the TDA rules and you hope they follow them, but no one says they have to. So now you're going to ethics. It's like it's even a, another subset of things to follow. I just don't see how they could enforce it um, unless they subscribe to it. And then you got to get them to subscribe to it. And it's just it's a very difficult thing, I think, to pull off. I, I don't know. But I... I, I think it's great if they could do it and we could all be ethical, but, you know, it's like, what's next? Oversight committees interviewing, you know, Dan Negreanu for why he check-raised Grinder at the, you know, Players' Championship? I mean, I just, you know, I don't know. I don't think it's worth I don't think, I, I not that I don't think it's worth it, I just don't think it would it would come to, to pass. pass all right, so. well, we will have a slight disagreement here, but not, not a big disagreement. So, I think there are two parts of this, and you touched on both of them. One is how possible is this and i'm gonna put on the scale of possible to me ever acknowledging that independence day resurgent was worth my 15 dollars <laughs> it is clearly to that end on the impossibility scale there's just absolutely I, I can't even imagine a way that that they could come up with something like this that would actually work i mean uh, the closest that that we ever seen is in the uh, the Epic Poker League, right? Mm-hmm. Where they did an ethics thing and actually had you know Chena Reem got in trouble with it, blah blah blah. But that was for that particular league. Yes, and it was a very small group of people that were involved in it, 
And that's the problem is that you need to have some kind of control, right? So you see people like, you know, like, like major sports leagues all have, you know, some kind of code of ethics and, or something. Maybe they don't mean to call it that, but they, you know, they can discipline players for doing what's not in the best interest of the league. But that's because the league owns them, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's no governing body for poker, and I'm not even sure people want that. Maybe some other people do, but I, I don't know how you would do that because it, you, you just get competing interests out there. So, um, so I don't think it's even possible. But then you have the let's assume that some smart person comes up with a way to make it possible and gets everybody on board with it. Then the problem is. What do we define as ethics in poker? And um, uh, this James Gould guy uh, touched on it in his column. Unfortunately, his column wasn't as well written as Jennifer's. So if I was a debate judge, uh, <laughs> I would have given voice to her. Um, but he's like, you know, so what do we constitute ethics in poker, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, is it, you know, domestic abuse? Is it uh, cheating on an online site? Is it check raising? Um, you know, there's just such a wide range of things that somebody would have to develop a list and say, this is what we consider to be ethical behavior, and this is what we consider not to be. And I really don't know how you can agree with that on a game that is played worldwide in lots of different ways. In different cultures, different capacities. Absolutely. There's no way that you can get an entire world to agree on something like this. And then even if you come up with a code, who's to say that they're going to implement it into their poker room, their poker tour? You know, it's very difficult. Like, I agree with you 100%. And you're right. And it's not just code of ethics. They have code of conduct, conduct. In, in a lot of these right. sports things. Ethics are different than conduct, too. Right, right. So right. now you're looking at, okay, did he, you know, did he beat somebody up outside of the poker room? No, he, he wasn't being a good person in his personal life, but this is poker, and... Uh, they're not heroes for people to watch on television, uh, you know. But then they are, and it's, it's just it's it's just no way you could wrangle all this together. And well, come up with and I'll code. tell you the toughest thing here that that's again completely different than these other leagues is that who is responsible for the poker tournaments out there? The casinos, right? Yeah. And how successful is the poker tournament? It's as successful as the number of people that pay to enter it, right? So now you got to go to these casinos and say, hey, this, you know, Klingon board somewhere is going to tell you that you can't allow these 12 people to buy into your 30 tournaments. That's not going to sit well. Right. I think those guys are going to want to say, hey, we can make a decision on who we let buy into our tournaments, you know. It's different if the guy in the NBA gets, uh, you know, a three-game suspension. You know, it's a different story, but... Now you're actually taking money out of a casino's hands for something they may not necessarily agree with. Exactly. Like there, there was a case of uh, a particular player in South Florida. Uh, we did a story on him years ago, yes. and somebody said to us, "Hey, what are you doing? This guy is horrible." Blah blah blah. And I'm like, "Hey, he's he didn't do anything to me, and he's playing at this particular facility. So while another facility may have disagreed with his whatever, this other facility is letting him play. So." Uh, why does the ethics of this facility allow this player to play when they fully well know what this player did at your facility to get thrown out of your facility? So 
that's the perfect example. What happens when are they following the code of ethics? Now you got to call them up and say, "Oh, hey, Joe Schmo, uh, this guy is coming into your poker room. I want to let you know that he is bumped out of our room because of the code of ethics. And since you follow the code of ethics, you have to bump him out of your room." And he's like, "He didn't do anything to my players, you know." And then this guy goes on to to win all kinds of titles and stuff. Is he never going to be able to play poker again because he didn't live up to your code of conduct or ethics? It, I'm not saying that you know I'm not at all you know condoning any kind of terrible behavior. I'm just saying, how do you enforce that? How do you do that? You got somebody patrolling them and making phone calls, and there's going to be lists coming out like a yeah. like your cops when they get the you know oh, we got all points bulletin out on Joshua. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it, it, we're looking at a very difficult thing. I understand well, in an ideal world you'd like to have everyone following a certain decorum. But to enforce it would be very difficult. I think the other thing we got to discuss here too is the fact. I mean, the reason this this was written was because of, there's still this firestorm of people upset that Howard Letterer and Chris Ferguson are at the World Series. So, mm. um, and, and we don't want to re-legislate that. I was actually surprised we didn't get as much hate mail as I as we did <laughs> on that from last week's discussion. But, um, but that but that's a different scenario. Um, you know, there is obviously the, the, the casino black book that all casinos subscribe to. So if you get banned, you know, if you get on that list, you're not going to be able to play in any of them. you got to do some pretty nasty stuff, though, to get on that, right? Yeah. You can't just, you know, I've run a online site that was fraudulent in some way, right? That's not going to, that has nothing to do with the actual casinos there, right? So right. that would not even apply to those folks. And now you'd be talking about something completely different. So it is possible, and I do know that poker room managers talk to other poker room managers. So if they ban somebody, they you know some get on the phone and say, "Hey, this is what this guy did here," and then the other poker room manager can decide, "Hey, uh, I don't want your business because of that," um, or they might decide, "Hey, you know, he violated something in your room, but he has a violating in my room, but I'm going to keep an eye on him now, and if he does, then I'm going to." Yeah, but that's never going to get to the letter or Ferguson thing, which is what spawned this. So. Those are different things, you know. If somebody's dangerous, if somebody steals some of that stuff, yeah, they're going to get kicked out of a lot of places, and a lot of places are not going to let them in. But if you're just made you know, a bad business judgment, uh, I, I, I don't really know what we're going to do to solve that problem for you. I agree. And as we've seen with Poker TDA, which is probably the the best organization to bring people together as possible. There's still a ton of poker rooms that don't use poker GDA rules, and even the ones that do pick and choose which rules they want to enforce. Yeah. So. And then even those rules are interpreted differently. That's why they have the meeting every two years because those well, rules it. are. Yeah. You know what I mean? So the same would happen with a code of ethics and a code of conduct. Uh, very, very interesting topic, but a very difficult thing to to actually implement. Yeah. Well, and the last thing I'll say too is one of the comments in there was poker is built on mavericks and individuals, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know how many poker players are out there actually clamoring for something like this. I think poker players like to come and go as they wish. And, yeah, they'll get upset at, at particular players or um, or things like that. But I don't necessarily think they're looking for, you know, some kind of formal body like this. Yeah. And who do you find to sit on it, too? That's the other thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then they have to be vetted. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or make sure that they're, you know, unimpeachable. Yeah. Yeah. Just, that. They're very good. Very good. 
All right, well, the uh, World Series is continuing on, and I got to say, Chris, it's been a boring week at the World Series. You know, we went through a lot of stuff that we updated you uh, last week, and um, there really hasn't been much this week. So I got two things to tell you. So Kristen okay. uh, Bicknell of Canada is the first woman to win a bracelet this year, winning event number 46, which is a $1,500 bounty event. And then Brian Rast is the second player to win the $50,000 Players' Championship, which was event 55 this year. Uh, second time, second player to win it twice. The only other player to do that, Michael Mizraki, uh, finished fourth this year. Uh, that uh, well, first, uh, congratulations to Kristen Bicknell. That was pretty awesome. And another woman won since then too. So we had two female winners, uh, if I remember correctly. From I was doing the recaps the other day. Um, so that's just great. The more the the more the women win, the better it is. And uh, uh, but Brian Rast, that first of all, that's remarkable. I always think it's remarkable. Then I wonder. How remarkable is it? It's it's kind of a weird thing. At first, I'm like, wow, that's fantastic because this is the greatest championship out there, you know, blah, 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 other than maybe the main event. But then I wonder, you know, there's only so many guys entering these things, you know. Yeah. And after yeah, a while, you get to play with these guys. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, you, you play with these guys all the time, and and you know the way they play, and it explains why the same five guys are making the final table. It's like Mike McDermott, you know, <laughs> saying, you know, it's not luck. You know, these guys are clearly great, and – but they know how to play against each other, you know. Well, yeah, and there's a couple things here. There's also a numbers game here, right? I mean, we were talking about that that university, that Arizona professor that won in his first tournament, 6,900 players, right? Yeah, 91 entries in this now because not a lot of people have 50,000 bucks <laughs> just flying yeah. around. It's a ten yeah. table. It's a nine, essentially a nine table tournament. Yeah. So now, obviously, these are probably 91 of the best poker players in the world. So um, you have to factor that in, but. Um, you know, it is obviously easier. So you can make the argument it's easier to win a 91-player tournament than it is a 6,972-player tournament. I think it's a fair argument to make, no matter what the skill level is. So, um, you know, if we get into, like, this uh, one-drop million thing, right, they only get 40-some people for that right. every other year, right? Right, right. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Antonio Esfandario uh, won again. Because yeah. it's only a forty-player tournament. Yep. Here's Again, the, against really tough players. Here's the point I want to make. Let's say you have ninety-one equally bad turn players. Okay. Well, let's just take the other end of the spectrum here. Right. But there's one or two or three or four or five players within those ninety-one that uh, have figured out how to beat these equally bad players, and they keep getting together every year. And they're the same equally bad players who aren't getting any worse, but they aren't getting any better because they're the same equally bad players. So these five guys have figured out, hey, here's how I'm going to beat these equally bad players. Just like if you go to your local room, okay, there's always like two or three guys when the tournament's over, they're at the final table. And how come these guys are always winning in their environment? Because they've they have achieved a level that they're successful at, and they have figured out how to beat the level that they're entering all the time. They're not re- far reaching out to a, a higher buy-in or whatever. They're sticking around for the hundred and twenty-dollar buy-in on Saturday afternoon, and they've figured out how to mow their way through these inexperienced fields to get to the final table. 
because they're not putting any more pressure on themselves to get to buy into bigger tournaments to travel to Vegas or whatever. Mm. And these other people are going down there every Saturday just to spend their paycheck to have a nice afternoon and maybe have a chance of winning some money. Same with this, I think. These guys aren't going to get any better than they already are. They can't go... They're the top of the field. It's not like all of a sudden Ms. Rocky's going to say, oh, you know what? I, I've figured it out, and I'm going to get better than everyone else here now in the world because there's another whole stratosphere of poker you guys have not been able to understand. No, these guys are the top of their games. And Rast and Ms. Rocky have figured out how to beat these players at these games in this way. That's why they're so good at it. So at first I was like, wow, Rast won it again. This is amazing. And then I thought, is it really? Or is it just like winning another bracelet? You know, to me, I don't know what to think about that. But it just feels like these players are at such a higher level. But a few of those players have figured out how to even beat that level the way the better than average player can beat the lowly players at their local poker room. And I don't think it's that big of a deal anymore when these guys win more than one. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, no, I, I think you've stumbled onto something that's very um, valid. Um, I, I guess the flip side would be that even though it's the same roughly 90 players every year, um, the fact that two of them have won it twice is still impressive that those two won it. And we could have been somebody else that won it twice, yeah, right? right. So, so I'll give Matt props to him for being the two that have done it. Um, but... Um, but your larger point, I think, is, is right, is that there's a lot of people, I think, are very successful in figuring out how to win particular events. Um, I remember years ago, um, I met a couple um, that was doing really well in the Heartland Poker Tour Player of the Year race every year. Um, they've since changed the structures and everything. But at that time, they were telling me, hey, we, we figured out how to play with this structure. And we travel around the, the country and there's a lot of people that are playing these tournaments for the first time that don't understand the structure. And we've played a lot of them. We know how to um, exploit that structure, right? So yeah. they've learned, obviously, they're talented poker players, but they went beyond that and learned how to win in a particular environment um, that other people have not yet. So I think that was part of your point. Yeah, it is part of it. Exactly it. These guys have figured out how these other players play and they know how what games to call not call but what what games to make their moves on and whatever it is they've figured it out and it's not going to change until they lower the buy-in and you get unknowns in or until these other guys die off or or, you know it's just it's never going to change these guys are always going to be near the final table or at the final table and winning these bracelets because they've figured out just like everyone else has and and i'm i'm happy for them it's great but i just don't know if it's that large of a feat anymore as it would be for navigating your way through 21,000 unknowns, you know. Um, but it's still fantastic. Obviously, they're playing at a level that no one's will, none of us will ever understand, and it's just f- phenomenal. Absolutely. Okay, any updates? Any uh, PokerRoom.com, our new subscription-based online poker room, is now opened, and our first online Any Up Poker Tour series is running through July 17th. Win our main event and get one grand in cash and your face on the cover of Any Up Magazine. Play all you want for fourteen ninety five a month if you live in one of the twenty five eligible states. Yeah, now of course we're recording at always a day early, so if you're listening to it on the day that we actually recording, event number one's at nine PM Eastern tonight and uh, we're getting a lot of good feedback. People are excited about this. So yep. I wish we could roll it out to more than these twenty five states, but hopefully if you are in one of those twenty five states you'll give it a try and um, 
you'll see on the virtual felt. Also, Sandia Resort and Casino in Albuquerque, New Mexico, will host an Annie Up Poker Tour series this year. The five-event series is unique as it will play out over several weekends. Two-day events are planned July 9th, July 23rd, August 6th, and August 20th, with the three-day main event taking place over Labor Day weekend, where the winner will appear on the cover of Annie Up Magazine. For more details, visit AnnieUpMagazine.com slash Sandia. And that means it kicks off this weekend. So. That's right. Good stuff. Good luck. All right, each week we spotlight a listener who emails us at podcast at com, And if they haven't won something from us in the past year, just like we do with Call the Floor and Hand of the Week, we send them something cool. It comes from Ed Riddler. Almost said Riddler, by the way. <laughs> he says, I've been listening to your archives lately. Lots of good interviews, by the way. I also listened to your first top five favorite poker players list. Listening to that made me laugh because so much has changed. Do you still have favorite poker players? If so, who and why? Well, I don't even remember that list. I remember, I remember vaguely. I did it. I, yeah. I, I, I couldn't even tell you who was on my top five back then. I know uh, Dewey Tomko was on your list. Oh, was he? Wow. Yeah, I remember Dewey Tomko was on your list. Wow. It's a name I haven't heard in years. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why I think that's his point, too. It's like, you, you know, could you update it? But it's very difficult to update it now that our business model of our magazine has been so hyper-local. And there's not a lot of poker on TV that either I watch or that is even on. So... It'd be difficult to update that list now for me. I would have to say my favorite poker player is Scott Long. Oh, gosh, thanks. Yeah, cause he donates so much money at the home game. I, <laughs> I, I have no recourse but to love him. No, but seriously, I, I don't know. I don't know who my favorite poker players would be now, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, I hate to disappoint, uh, disappoint Ed and our listeners here, but um, when he responded to us, I, I, I gave him a lot of the same stuff. I'm like... Uh, I think there's stuff that Ed knows, as he mentioned, there's lots of change, right? So um, I'm assuming he's talking about some of the things you mentioned, the fact that poker's not on TV as much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the Black Friday and the online room, so they're, it, it's harder to make a poker celebrity now than it was back probably when we made that list where there were lots of poker celebrities, right? Um, and so it just hasn't been in the consciousness of the poker community, I think. Um, and then even less so for us because we've been focused on everyday poker players, you know, really hard here for the last um, eight years. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, I think we mentioned this on the show before, too, and I, I definitely mentioned to Ed, too, is, you know, now we've been doing this, you know, with the podcast for 11 years now. Um, I've met a lot of poker pros and. Um, after I met a lot of them, I decided I didn't want to really see them again. <laughs> yeah, uh, which is disappointing, I know. But so, but th- but that's also part of um, just how we've grown as businessmen with the business, our business model, right? Mm-hmm. Our model is clearly on everyday players, and a lot of the, the poker pros I met that I have a lesser opinion of now, I just see how they've kind of. I don't know what the word is. Um, how they've taken from the poker community without giving back, I guess is maybe the way it is, you know. Um, and and that makes me less excited about them. So. Yeah, I think now, in the old days, it was, I like the way they played, and I like the character they played on TV. But when I meet them in person, or when I have met them in person, then it was more of a, I want to know what kind of person they are, and I'd be a fan of that. Like, I'll always be a fan of Doyle Brunson, no matter what. He'll always be one of my top fives. 
um, now because when I got to interview him that time and the way he treated that guy who was clearly just delusional with what he was thinking about Doyle Brunson and everything and Doyle just let it roll off his back and just yeah. was such a great guy in person and you know from what I experienced with him he was I just thought wow this guy's phenomenal and of course he's one of the greatest of all time so yeah he'd still be on my list but there were some other players when I met him I was like wow really I didn't realize you were like that and so yeah. <laughs> you know that does happen um but yeah it's very difficult to have a top five for me now just because of the things we talked about and but I would imagine my list wouldn't have changed that much unless I did something horrible in in life, you know, or or to someone or something, and I might have changed it. But as far as you know, the reason why they made me a top five back then, you know, it's probably the same reason why they'd make it now in the sense that they would still be a fantastic player, and as long as they didn't offend me or or do something terrible to somebody else, they'd probably still land in that top sure. five part. Um, I, I will throw out one name. I the one guy I can, I'm consistently impressed by and never been disappointed by has been Dennis Phillips. I mean, all yeah. the events I've been to with him, he's just been a class act, super awesome guy. Um, that still cares about the overall poker community, um, and you know, so I'll throw that name out. He's he's one that he's definitely a fan. I'm a fan of. Yeah. All right, find yourself in a situation at your favorite poker room or home game and you're not sure what the proper ruling should have been? Email us at podcast at com. We'll have Hollywood Casino Toledo Director of Poker, Elliot Schechter, tell you how he would have ruled. Comes from Matt Bodorf, long-time listener. He says, we're in a tournament where starting stacks were 15,000 and blinds were 75,150. There was about 3,000 in the pod as the turn card comes out. Player A says two and tosses in a single 5,000 chip. Player B immediately raises and drops in 12,000 chips. Player A folds as I speak up and say, wasn't his bet only 200? Floor is called and gives player A 4,800 and change from the 5,000 chip and says the bet is lowest denomination. I know the dealer made the mistake and should have clarified the bet, but as it went down, was this correct? Any case made for any other outcome? I felt bad because player B clearly lost 1800 in dead money, but I want the rules to be followed correctly wherever I play. Also, player B could have said the same thing I did and forced a 200 bet to stand and seen the river for only 200. Instead, he quickly raised. All right, Elliot says, uh, this, the rule and example from the TDA that would apply to this situation related are as follows. Rule number 52, non-standard and unclear betting. Players use unofficial betting terms and gestures at their own risk. These may be interpreted to mean other than what the player intended. Also, if a declared bet can reasonably have multiple meetings, it will be ruled the lesser value. For example, no limit hold'em, 200, 400 blinds. Player declares, I bet five. If it is unclear whether five means 500 or 5,000, the bet is 500. Uh, example two, no limit hold'em, 75, 150 blinds. Pre-flop, there is 3,200 in the pot. Post-flop, player A opens for 2,000. Player C, D, and E call. There's now 11,200 in the pot. On the turn, player A declares bet five and tosses out a 5,000 chip. While both 500 and 5,000 are technically viable bets here, 5,000 is much more in keeping with the recent betting action which is in increments of 1,000, and pot size, which at 11,200 is more than double the maximum amount of player A's bet. This said, the TDA may determine it is in the best interest of the game to enforce betting discipline and rule the bet is 500. Uh, it goes on to say, you, you or speaking up in the spot is good. More players need to actively insist in protecting the game. 
uh, you were announcing a specific amount was not helpful as it appears you were trying to make a decision for the table in a hand in which you were not participating. Also, the raising player virtually acted out of turn by not letting the opening better clarify the wager. This quick action would trump any reservations I had about possibly about possibly providing an angle regarding the bet size to the opening better. A reasonable wager in this spot is 2000 but it's not the supervisor's job to read the player's mind. I would be inclined in this situation to rule the bet 200 and let all the players know that clarity is key when acting on your hands with oversized chips. Do you think the dealer, when he hears something like this, should stop and make them clarify it? Well, yeah, obviously, I mean, a lot of these call the floor situations come down to dealers that just checked out for a minute, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is a lesser one, in my opinion. Um, I do prefer that the dealer clarify an unclear bet, obviously, and in this case, I would prefer that they would. But I, I think there are more egregious things that dealers do than this. And, um, you know, the funny thing about this um, is that this was a major point of conversation at the Poker TDA Summit last year. And that's why you have kind of conflicting stuff here. You got the rule that says it should be a lowercase, but then an example where TD, uh, you know, it could be based on the betting action, right? Um, and so it was a very interesting discussion to um, listen to. And back to your question, I think the thing I got out of that discussion was that you could have 10 people in a room or conveniently 10 people sitting at a poker table and five of them would say, oh, he clearly met 2,000. And the other five would say, he clearly met 200. Yeah. Um, just because that's how your brain works, right? When somebody tosses that out, you immediately look at it and go, oh, yeah, that's 2,000. When the guy next to you says, oh, yeah, that's 200. So not that anybody's right or wrong in that situation, but it's not as clear as I think people think. You know, yeah. Your interpretation of what is clear might be different from mine. Um, so that goes back to what the, the actual wording is, is that it's much better if we can just get players to say 200 or 2,000 rather than two. It's extra syllable or two <laughs> yeah absolutely and if not then um then you're at risk of your bet being ruled something different so what i thought was fascinating about this was that it seems to me that the guy who was unclear actually got away with something that he didn't mean to yeah i mean i i really in this reading and looking at the at the limits and the bets and everything like that i think he clearly meant to say two thousand me too. Um, and um, I, I'm not sure what his chip stack was at the time. I would think, you know, unless he just had a 5,000 chip, I would think if he really meant 200, he would have thrown out a 500 or a 1,000 chip instead of a 5,000 chip. But I don't know. Maybe that's all he had. So I clearly think that he meant 2,000. And then because he got raised, he was able to save himself 1,800 by not saying anything. Right. Well, he was able to save it by because someone else spoke up. Our friend spoke up. Otherwise, you know, that's why I don't think it's an angle shoot because if it's a coin flip on which way you could go, it's not an angle shoot in my mind because he could also get hurt by it not being 2,000 when he could have got people to fold if it was 2,000. So I don't think of it as an angle shoot, dude. Do you? No, no, I don't think people saying it is an angle shoot because you're right because it depends on what people interpret that, that yeah. is. It's going to be a wildly different than what you hope, right? Right. I mean, when I'm betting, I'm the reason you bet is you're taking control of the situation, right? So if you're betting and then you are being unclear in a wildly different way, you you have no control of the situation anymore, so that's reckless. Yeah. So I, I, it obviously is in your best benefit to clearly state your actual amount to affect 
the result that you're hoping to get, whether it's to get a call or get a fold, right? Yeah. So I, I guess what I was saying here, though, is that obviously it's player B, in my opinion, that kind of got cheated here. It wasn't an angle shoot, but um, it seems to me that player A clearly meant to bet 2000 but because of this rule, ended up saving 1800 when he decided he wanted to fold. Yeah. yeah. Now, obviously, player B has some um, responsibility here as well, too, for not clarifying the bet. Um, so I'm not saying player A is... A, a bad person here. I'm just saying this is an interesting scenario where being unclear does not necessarily hurt you when that's right, what we're got, trying to tell you. Yeah, you got lucky. Yeah. Hey, we got a new O'Malley's move. Here it comes. Hello, and welcome to another O'Malley's move. I'm Malcolm O'Malley. This week we are seated in that 50 cent $1 No Limit Hold'em PLO game from last week. And at this point, we are in the PLO round. We're down to $75 of our starting stack of 100 If you remember from earlier episodes, PLO is one of my weaker games. The table is still six-handed. The under-the-gun folds, plus one and cutoff call, and we're on the button with the Ace of Hearts, King of Hearts, Jack of Diamonds, Five of Diamonds. A big suited ace with three Broadway cards is decent, although I'm not crazy about the five. We call, small blind calls, big blind checks, there's five dollars in the pot and the flop is a great one. The ace of clubs, queen of hearts, five of hearts comes down. We've made top and bottom pair with the nut flush redraw. The small blind checks, the big blind bets pot, five dollars, the plus one folds, the cutoff calls, and we raise to ten dollars. The remaining players call. The cutoff is the villain from our last episode, the woman who can get bored. She tends to play too many hands in PLO and is very loose passive. The big blind is a solid player who has a good grasp on PLO. Both players have us covered. The pot is $35 and the turn is the nine of spades. This is essentially a blank for us. Both players check to us. We're down to $65 but decide to keep the pot manageable. After all, we only have a made two pair. The pot is the same, and the river is the five of spades. Awesome. Five's full. The big blind once again bets pot, $35. Not awesome. The cutoff immediately folds, and we have a decision here. Is our full house good? What's the move? It's time for Hand of the Week. Send your hands or situations to podcast at antietmagazine.com. And we're in for some fun today, Chris. Yay! Our good friend Paul Rolston, the uh, the bard of Antioch, I would like to say. Okay. Uh, his Hands of the Week are always literary masterpieces. So um, strap in and enjoy this. All right. All right, he says, I'm back in South Africa and playing catch-up. Um, uh, we have the inter-club game tomorrow, so I'm powering through my save. Annie Ups is part of my prep. Good luck with that. <laughs> Apparently our hand analysis is not stellar. <laughs> uh, I just listened to the episode where you talked about playing against a, a single lag player at a cash game. That's cute. And thought about last night's tune-up game. It's the usual Thursday night, uh, 500 units, or 500 I wish I knew what South Africa currency was. <laughs> Rubles? Oh, geez, no. It's been a while since I've seen Lethal Weapon. I don't know what it is. Was rupees? That, rupees. Oh, no, Rupees is like <laughs> India, right? I have no idea. 
rubles. I'm gonna look this up right now. Oh, jeez. Oh, yeah, look at this. Oh, Russian is rubles. I know. I, I, I was saying, what you should type in what South African currency, South not what well, rubles are. Trying to uh, extend the uh, South African currency. Here yeah. we go. Rands, rands, right? Rands. Yes, South African rand. Look, I got that before Google did. So it's a 500 rand tournament, or what? 500 rand. Yes. All right. Which uh, one rand equals point zero six eight U.S. dollars? Wow. So oh, 500 rand is not a lot. Look at that. Look at Google's awesome. We got a conversion here. Uh, so it's a $33.94 tournament. Okay. That's nice. Yeah, I didn't think it was that big. Okay. Right. Single rebuy backroom game. Backroom in quotes. All right. Well, I don't know if that means the room is actually in the front room, but. <laughs> uh, 40 runners. And he said, having busted out of the tournament in 10th, uh, I jumped in the cash game about one ish. Uh, 5 to 10, 1,000 men. Uh, 5 10, 1,000 men buy table. Uh, but it also has more uh, loose aggressive play than an old AOL connection and is a wild and crazy place. Very friendly, lots of old hands, familiar foes, but a place big and wild and unconventional. Most people will sit with 2,000 or more and they reload at speeds that would amaze the defenders of the Alamo. So the table can very quickly get people sitting behind stacks of 6 to 20K. Most hands get a 25 straddle. Um... And action flops will be run two to five times if the all-in comes before the river, and many deals are made before players who are playing big but not looking to hear the lamentations of their opponent's women. Wow. All right. Uh, uh, there's a hand here. I was going to say, are we talking about poker today, or <laughs> I don't know what's <laughs> going on? You'll see that this crazy house is 60, but 80 is considered low, and 125 is the number that last night regularly attracted five to seven callers. See, I said in was after the player raised 175 with ace ace in late position, got four callers. Um, a, dra- a draw heavy straightening flushing board ended up all in and crushed by 9 5 offsuit when the small blind hit the straight on the river. So, the, at this point, it sounds like everything you hate and enough to make Chris pause uh, in this trap them and cash strategy. However, going to my real discussion point, we're getting there, Chris. Okay. Either you uh, only play the tables that you play that you like to play or want to play, or you learn how to adapt your own play to suit the situation in the room, and then bring at least some of that edge to all the other tables you play. All this to say, you hate pretty much everything I'm about to describe, and I will pre-defend it as playing style designed to play in a bear pit like this in deliberately uh, loose aggressive light. I'm in for 2K and recover from initial losses back to 2K. Is still looking for my moment. Um, all right. Let's see, I think we're starting the hand now, so I'm going to pause here. Okay. And say uh, we're in mid mid position uh, with Queen Jack suited. Okay. Is that it? Uh, I'm pausing for your. Oh, you, well, I can't do anything until I know what the other guys do. I mean, I'll play this hand if no one enters the pot or. If Looks not- like we are the first to act. Well, usually when I enter a pot, I raise. So, I mean, I don't know if the 25 straddle was on. They said the straddle was on a lot. I don't know. And it doesn't matter, really, because no matter what I do, they're going to call. doesn't work like it was. but um, You know, I generally I like to raise with the when I come in as first into a pot, but it just seems like such a wild game. I might change that tactic. I don't, I don't know. You know, I might say, hey, I'm going to get a bunch of callers anyway, so I'm going to get the right odds to play suited connectors and... These are fantastic Broadway cards, but they're the nice kind of cards that make straights and stuff and make two pair with. So, I mean, I, I just, I don't know. I mean, generally, I would raise. If I'm at this wild table, I might limp 
and see what happens because you know if I make it what were they saying some guys are making it 80 and 125 so the, the minimum race you'll see is 60 yeah 80 is considered low and 125 is a number that regularly tracks five to seven callers that's what i'm saying so what's the point why why should i risk more than 10 what do we call them rins what'd you call them rands rands why would i want to risk more than 10 rands uh when i'm gonna get a million calls for 125 anyway now i guess yeah if I'm going to get a bunch of callers, it'll give me the odds to draw to things. So I just don't know. I don't know what it accomplishes. Every time you raise or put money in a pot, you have to have a reason to do it. I don't know what that reason would be here except to just build a pot. I mean, I guess you could do that, but you're not in position either. Generally, I like to play suited connectors in position when I know there's a lot of money there and I'm closing the betting. So I don't know. Uh, it's just an interesting situation. Well, I would say in general, you're... Your consideration of this kind of game should be if you're going to limp here, you have to figure that is going to get raised, right? Yeah. So you're going to be putting more in, um, or you're going to be folding to that raise. So what I what I wouldn't want was for me to keep throwing ten units <laughs> into a pot all night long when I keep folding. Right. right. So if I'm inclined to fold, um, uh. More than half the amount of time, I'm going to have to quit limping because I'm just throwing that money away. Right? If that's how you're going to play it, like I said, I you might be willing to call it up to 125, but if you know if you're going to put in 125 first, and it's a crazy game, and they're going to make it 375, I'm not going to the mat with the queen jack. So I just don't know if there's a re-raising element to this game too. If there is, I might limp and then call what I was willing to raise. You know, and I understand when they say, "Well, if you're willing to call that, you might as well make that bet." But in a game like this, if it's going to get out of hand, exactly. I'm not going to go to the mat with Queen Jack. So, right. So that's my point: is that yeah. you have to be comfortable if you're going to limp here that you're only going to throw away a small percentage of your limps when right. it raises. Right. You're going to have to. If you're going to limp, you're going to have to be prepared to call 125 Agreed. or more um, when it comes around. And I think you're you're um, absolutely right. Um, in a normal game that I would be raising that amount, but if I raise that amount now, it could be 500 by the time he gets back to me, and I don't want to play this hand for 500. Right. So I, I am going to limp with the uh, intention of calling a 100, 150-unit bet, probably. Yeah, that's what I think. Because um, I would normally make that raise, but knowing that this game is the way it is, then I'm just willing to call that and, and look at it as if I made that raise when it got to me and everyone else just called you know, as far as the amount of money it's in the pots I was trying to get to. So I'm happy with just limping and seeing what happens. All right. That's exactly what our hero does. He says, uh, I'm limping with the intention of calling the almost in- inevitable 125 bet when it comes, knowing obviously that I'll need to hit the flop or fold away and look for the next investment opportunity. Uh, the button raises to 150, gets two collars before it gets back to me. Yeah. Now it's perfect because. You know, now you're going to get, especially since they're just callers, you're getting great odds on your money with the suited Broadway cards that are connected. That that worked out pretty well right now. I like that. So I'm going to call. Yeah, and I think we are the last act here, too, so we close it out so we don't have to worry about a re-raise. That's awesome. As well, too, so all the more reason. All right. Um, our hero says, knowing I'm behind at least one of them, more likely two, I call because, well, the table, man, the table. Right. <laughs> Flop is ace, queen, jack of spades. Four, three spades? Three spades. 
How can that be? We have the queen. Oh, we have queen jack suited. We don't know what suited. Queen jack suited. We don't know suited. Oh, okay. I wrote down S, thinking it was spades. Okay. Sorry. Uh, let's see. Checks uh, to us. And then, what? There are four people in the pot, so about six hundred in the pot, I think. Yeah, about six hundred in the pot. Wow. Uh, I would, I would definitely bet here. Um, First of all, the checkers, if they had it, I think they would bet because that fourth suit could drop. If they had the flush, you know, they probably would bet, given the craziness of this game, they knew they'd get callers, so I don't think they have the flush. There's no reason to lie in the weeds in a game like this, right? Yeah. Paid off. Yep, so you're going to get paid off, so I might as well bet and try to protect this hand. The only worry is the guy, the button, if he had somehow made King-10 or... Ace queen or set, Pocket but aces. yeah, but really, I mean the way this game is played, I would have to think I'm ahead here, and I want to protect my hand unless I have, yeah, no, no, I just have, I have, I have redraws to the boat, which still may or may not be good. Obviously, we're never making the flush, um, so I want to bet, you know, I want to bet pretty decent too. I'm going to bet like pot here because I want to make sure that at least they're going to pay an amount that will hurt them if they make a mistake or just they are making a mistake, so. I think I would bet pot here. Maybe even a little more. All right, I've never uh, got my um, stones up to bet pot in most cases, so <laughs> I'm a little apprehensive about betting that much. But uh, but I'm with you on wanting to bet here. Um, I might go 400 or so. Well, you would bet pot on a PLO game, uh, and that's with more cards. How's that any different? Yeah, well, that's a different story because now I'm trying to build the pot so I can bet more later on. And uh, No, I'm holding I can bet whatever I want any time. It's so still a huge bet, pot. though. Oh, yeah. No, I'm saying it's a significant bet, but, you know, also I started this hand with, what, 2,000? Right. So pot would be 600, so it'd be a little more than a quarter of your stack. Yeah. So, um, I don't know, so 600 after I put 150 in, so that'd be 750. So that's You're 13. more than a third of my... My stack is already in this pot right now, and if the D- button raises, so I, I guess what I'm asking is: Is there any scenario where you're folding here? Probably not. Okay, so if there's no scenario where you're folding, then uh, then you're right. I think uh, a pot size bet is appropriate because you know you're you're really you're getting those folks that are drawing to pay a really high price to do so. And if everybody folds, you win the pot, obviously. And if somebody raises you, then you're not upset about having to put the rest of your chips in. And, you know, it was T.J. Cloutier that said, bottom two pair lose the most money in this game because somebody will have ace-king here. You know, make your bet. You call. They make your, you make your bet. They call or shove on you. You call, and then the board pairs. Their other card or pairs goes runner-runner pair, and you, know, and you lose your money. So, yeah, it's, it's a precarious situation here. Yeah, so I guess that's what I'm more scared of. I'm not so... I mean, there is a possibility that somebody already has spades out there, and I'm going to have to improve. But it's also really possible that somebody has ace-queen or Mm ace-jack. And then now our outs to improve are even smaller than we think, right? Yeah. So, I mean, this isn't just a a 7-9 tray spade board here where I'm not really worried about anybody having any piece of it other than spades. There's a lot of... a lot of other two pair combinations. There's obviously, as you mentioned, a king ten possibility. Um, 
So there are lots of ways that we could be like behind here and very few outs to catch up. So I guess that's why I'm a little more apprehensive about just saying, eh, I'm going to put my whole stack in here if I have to. So Which do you think the scenario you'd fold? I just need to check then, too. Is there a scenario? See, that's the thing is I can't check with three spades, and I don't have a chance to hit that spade. I'm up against four other cards or whatever, right? Absolutely. Or whatever it is. Uh, there's three other people in the case. So six other cards. Someone's going to have a spade. i got to protect that. So I can't just check either. i got to well, protect what my interests. With my chip stack, because I think we just agreed, if we bet the 600 you're talking about, we're, we're in our minds pocketed, correct? I think so, because we'd only have so, 1250 left. Is there another bet in between checking and 600 where we don't feel that way? And if so, is it an effective bet? Yeah, that's the thing. Is I, given this table and this scenario and the environment, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if there's a bet that they'll fold to. If somebody's raising the 150 preflop, you know, when the blinds are five and ten, they clearly don't respect money, or the amounts are not big enough for these guys to really take the game seriously. So I don't know. I really don't know if there's a bet that's effective. So I might as well make it mathematically wrong for them. You know, I, I don't know. If I make it 400, which is generally what I would normally make this bet, I would, make, I would bet about 400 normally here into a 600 pot, thinking that these guys were respecting the amount of money and that the amount of money would sting and to their stacks and to their lifestyles and all that kind of thing. But if it's just, hey, who cares? I might as well get as much money in as I can and at least make it a mistake on their part and I'm playing correct poker. So I don't know. I guess the other concern I have, too, is we're only on the flop here, right? We yeah. only have 2K. So there are a lot of scenarios where we're going to, even if we check, uh, even if we bet a smaller amount here, that we're going to end up being pot committed at some point without improving our hand, right? Um, so I'm a little worried about that, too. I, I think our chip stack is just making this difficult for us. So even though a uh, check is not proper here, I think with my chip stack, it's something I'm probably going to think about now. So you're not going to protect your hand at all? Well, you're I know. Let the spade I'm going to assume that the button is probably going to bet. Um, and if not, then we'll see what happens on the um, on the turn. I mean, yeah, that four spade could get there. But the four spade gets there, I'm still live for my boat outs. Mm. I would be happy seeing it. But also if that four spade gets there and there's a bet and a race before it gets to me, then I know I'm done. And I only committed 150 to this pot rather than 600, 400, or 2,000. Let me ask you this. Let's say we made it 400, and they just called, and the turn's a blank. Now you have... This is what I'm talking about. So now that the turn's a blank, we don't have any more real information, right? Right. Everybody just kind of called. Um... And since we bet, now we're in the scenario now that we slow down. If we slow down, we're still giving them the option to catch up, which is what we're worried about right now, right? Right. Or if we bet, now the pot is so big that we have to put our stack in, right? Right. And that's fine if we're ahead, but it's quite possible that there's small spades out there that just don't feel comfortable in their hand that are also just hanging back here hoping to not get snapped off. And now we now we've got one card left to catch up to, and it might not even be good if somebody else has ace queen out there. If we're up against a maid flush and ace queen, we're in real trouble here. That's correct. That's correct. But if they all just called your four hundred bet, you wouldn't know what you're up against. That's what I'm saying. But so if, we, if win, we bet, 
so you're saying if we check and then somebody bets okay, 400. Let's back up. Let me ask you this. If we check, what do you think? It seems to me that there's a high um, high degree of possibility that the button's going to bet something anyhow, right? So right. I don't think we're giving up a free card here. Um, but and if that's the case, then we got to figure out how much is he going to bet. So if he makes it 600... Now it's depending on what the other two players do as to so what you're going to do. If he makes 600 and no one raises him and gets back to us, now we can put the 600 in knowing that we're not going to get raised. Right? Yeah. Well, With our chip stack, I feel a little more comfortable with than betting 600 and having the button raise us to 2,000 and then have to make that decision. So you were worried earlier about being raised. I didn't realize that. I thought you were just worried that 600 would commit you on the next well, street and you have to shove anyway. get raised here, right? I don't know if we get raised if we're taking the board. If we're taking it at the the control of the hand, betting six hundred, I don't know if the guy's going to raise us. He may say, "Well, I don't know what they're taking control of the hand. We're, we're we're the first to bet, so if everybody else is scared of this, they're obviously going to get out of the way." Well, for the moment, you've taken control because you've controlled the betting, so you've taken control of the hand at that moment. At that I just, moment, but I don't think we've really taken control of the hand. I think we have just fired the first bull in what's going to be a bloody war here. <laughs> um. Okay, well, I I just feel like and I'm basing off what Paul is describing this game about. I mean, no, I know I am too. A two game with you know a mix of older folks and people just out for a recreational day. It's a completely different story, right? Yeah, I, I, it's a game where I expect there's going to be betting and raising pretty regularly. I, I don't see a lot of checked around streets in this game. I would suspect that if if I was telling this story to somebody. And I checked here. The minute the big bu- the the bu- button checks again behind us, they would ream me a new butthole because they would say, "How could you not protect your hand?" So if I'm not betting here, I'm gonna unless the guy bets on the because you're con- convinced the button's gonna bet. If you're absolutely convinced and you know he's gonna bet, then I might change my action here. If I can't guarantee that, I have to protect my hand. If I think someone's going to protect it for me, then I might consider the check. It's just that it's not like we're the first person to act. We have three guys behind us, so you know one of them's going to do it. Now you've only got one guy left. But it is the one guy that raised pre-flop, too. Sure, agreed, agreed. But he also could be scared by this. So sure, I, like- I don't know. I don't I don't know. He could have had pocket eights and no spades in his hand. But if and- it does check around, now we're going to get some information on the turn, right? I don't know if the blank comes or not. If a spade comes, they're going to represent. You know, right, I mean, I, I don't you, know if what you're to do. In the blinds and you have baby spades here, and you're not willing to bet out right now, um, but it checks around, and then a blank comes on the turn, you're not going to wake up at that point. Uh, I don't know anybody who have baby spades who would not bet. If I had a maid flush already, I would be betting 100 percent of the time, no matter what position I'm in here. Hmm. I am protecting against the fourth card of all the guys who clearly have higher cards than me because I was being frisky and came along with seven, eight of spades. There is no way I'm not protecting this flush to a fourth card coming down and me losing to some guy who has ace, ten. You know, there's no way I'm not going to get my money in now and get value for this hand. So I don't see that happening in that scenario. Hmm, okay. I have to bet. I'm sorry. I just have to bet. I I think I'm going to bet pot here and just live with whoever wants to bitch about it. (laughs) All right, so you're betting 600. Yeah. I talk myself into probably a check here. Okay. All right. 
Uh, um, let's see. Uh, I choose quite deliberately to donk bet, see where I am, chase out the rubbish, and see where we are left. 350 to go. So even a little bit smaller than what I would have been had I talked myself into betting. Uh, the button calls, and the other two insta-fold their rubbish. Yeah. All right, this game just got more interesting now. Uh, all right, so the button is a solid, strong player, far from the wild man at the table. A wizard, young math kid, got gamble, but a real player. I immediately put him on an ace and maybe the spade draw, possibly even ace-king. Uh, he says, my two pairs good as long as we do not see another spade. This is my read, and I'm pretty certain of it. All right, well, you're at the table. I'm not, but I think there's some other things I'm worried about. But he didn't raise us, so. <laughs> yeah, it seems odd that he, it, in other words, if he didn't raise, then he wasn't worried about the other two players. So it, it's not like he's protecting his hand. It sounds to me like he is hoping to hit something additional. Because if he, if he wanted to protect his hand against other people, that 350 bet was not very large. And so if this ace really wanted to protect a made hand, he would have raised here, I think, because he would have been afraid of the other guys coming along for a cheap price. So the fact that he called means I think he's hoping to hit a spade here. That's what it feels like. Mm, okay. The turn is a blank red card, and we are first to act. All right, so we've bet 350 of what was about 1,800 in our hand at the time. So, you know, we have about 14 or so in our hand, and the pot is 7 plus 613, so... It's tough. It's tough because uh, he could be walking the dog on us. I mean, I, I don't want to check because for the same reason, if he, I really did believe he was drawing, if I really believe he's drawing, I'm shoving. If I honestly believe that he has an ace rag or an ace king, I think I have to shove here. So it depends on what I think this guy has. If I, I believe see, so he has that, I'm shoving. I would say Paul is very certain in his um, read here, right? So if that is his read, I think you're right. I think you got to put the hammer down now. Yeah, because if you're protecting, if you bet the right bet amount is about more than half your stack. On the turn, you gotta you gotta lo- lower the hammer here and, and make this guy pay. And if you're wrong, you're wrong. You chalk it up to a poor read, and you get better at the game. But if you're right on your read, you have to lower the hammer down here and let it get it all in. Now, let's say our read was not as confident as Paul. I mean, is there? It seems to me that there's also a possibility that um, we're up against um, high spades here. I mean, obviously, king ten would be incredible, <laughs> right? Um, but maybe it could be. King nine or something. I don't know. Um, so you're saying he's already got the flush, and so he could have the flush. So if you were him, I'm going back to the flop now. And if you were him, you would just call, yeah, because you you want to bring those other two players along. Yeah, right? yeah, right. Yeah, you're right. But uh, it just it's so, so the check is either because he has a monster and wants to bring the other two people along. Or he kind of hit something that he thinks might be good or could could be could improve to something good. Right? It just feels like he could have ace king with the king of spades. That's what it feels oh, like. Oh, certainly could absolutely or something like that. And but so I think it's also possible that that he could have the made spades. But obviously, I'm, like I said, I'm not at the table and Paul's there and he says I'm pretty sure that it's ace king with the spade redraw. If that's the case, then yeah, we we can't we got to make him pay yeah. a lot to see yeah. this last. Plus, you know, I can't, as we always used to say years ago, you can't be afraid of the monsters under the bed. I can't think this guy's at flop the absolute nuts on me every time I'm playing in a hand with someone. So I'm going to so, go with the odds. The thing to think about, too, is that if if he does have spades right now, we we have the redraw to our boat. Right. So we're 
we're still not drawing dead aside unless he has king ten. Right. Yes, has king ten of spades or a trove. He's got a royal. Right. <laughs> so well, two we're drawing dead. There's a shove here and one reason not to. So I'm going to go with the math. Yeah, Let, let's shove. Another math. <laughs> Uh, all right, so we decided to bet five fifty. Any calls? I just, you know, five fifty is a smallish bet to me. Um, I don't know. I mean, it just it seems like. What did I say was in the pile? Let's see. There's six from the what about thirteen hundred. So thirteen hundred. So five is. I don't know. It seems like a smallish bet yeah, to me. Yeah, especially if you're trying to give them the wrong price. To yeah. Call. Yeah, I, I would, I would definitely. Because then also too, I mean, are you going to fold to a re-raise? I mean, are you going to fold to a re-raise now if you bet five of your thirteen hundred or whatever? I mean, I just don't see I'm going to fold for eight hundred when there's that much in the pot. So I just can't see myself folding. So why not bet more? Why not even shove and put him to a test and make him pay the wrong price? If you're wrong, you still have outs. The only hand you don't have outs to, like you said, is a royal flush. And I can't put the guy flopping a royal flush, whatever. 77,000 to one or whatever the hell it is. So I just don't, I don't agree with that bet. I would have bet more. All right. Now he says, uh, now I am rock solid. Sure. Um, I don't know about rock solid. Sure. But I'm more solidly sure that he's drawing now. So I I guess the benefit here in this bet is that if that spade gets there, now you could fold and save some money feeling pretty confident that you're beat and fairly confident that you should have, Push them off the hand. <laughs> yeah, it's it's gonna be tough to fold on that river. That's the bright, the, the the very dim silver lighting I'm seeing in this situation. And because this guy could this guy really be floating all this time just to hope a spade comes? There's just no way. I don't think he took control of this hand early on before the flop. Well, again, so. I want to say he could have a flop straight. I mean, flop flush too. Yeah, and or maybe even a flop straight. I mean, I don't know what his chip stack was. Here. I think he would definitely bet if he had yeah. a flop straight. But he could have a flush here and just knows that we're to keep betting and let us keep doing it. And then he'll just raise his own hand. Yeah. The only hand that I think could do that a straight is if he had the king of spades, ten of hearts, like that. And he was just yeah. saying, hey, I can't lose here unless the board pairs. So I might as well just keep calling and walking this guy. But yeah, yeah. that's a really awesome. specific hand. Uh, all right. Here says he may well have the ace. He does not have two pair. He probably has the king of spades. I am certain that I am golden as long as the fourth spade does not come. Um, um, my loose as a weightless belt call has paid off, and as long as the draw does not come in, I have found my spot. River is another blank. No other straight is made. The four card flush is missed, and I'm pretty sure my raggedy two pair just crushed an ace with a draw. No. Well, given this scenario, I mean, you're not going to fold to a bet. Yeah, so, so you got to bet. bet. So whatever. I don't care. doesn't matter what he bets because if he raises, you're going to call it anyway. So, Well, but we you, only have about 400 left here, right? I don't so, know. Is that how much we have? Five? Eight? Neighborhood. No, we have we have about a – no, because we started with 2,000. Eight. We so put we 150 put the, in. We put 950 in. 950. Five. So we still have All a lot right, left. Yeah. So we got 1,000. You're right. I'm sorry. So I would bet – I would bet a well normally I would bet a third of the pot. So it's you know, but then again that's probably fifty percent of my stack, so I don't know. Probably just shove it. Uh that's exactly what our hero does. Uh he says I ship my bounce, which is a less than pot size bet. I'm hoping uh, he reads Miss Flush or weakness and calls with his ace. He groans, tanks, grumbles, and open folds King King with the King of Spades. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a 
Yeah, I can see him doing that, but he knows he has to hit the whole way. That's the thing. He knows his kings can't be good. It's weaker than I thought. Yeah. So. Well, another good hand. Absolutely. I'm Chris Casenza. And I'm Scott Long. We'll see you at the table. Anti-Up is a production of antiupmagazine.com. Contact the show at podcast at antiupmagazine.com or call our hotline at 206-338-6344. If you'd like to advertise, send an email to advertising at antiupmagazine.com or call 727-331-4335. Some music used in this episode comes courtesy of the Podsafe Music Network.